Well, Father, thank you for your good hand upon us throughout 2012. And now, as we, in some ways most remarkably, sit here in 2013, launching a new year, we want to live it by your grace. We want to live it according to your word. We want to be courageous Christians. We want to be confident. We want to be content. Uh, we want you to be at work in us. And we know that we need to grow. And we are often so aware of our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities and our, our soft points where the enemy wants to attack in the vulnerable underbelly. And so, Father, use this time, as you so often do, to strengthen us, to challenge us, to wake us up. Father, we receive your word with joy. And we receive it, Father, as a great privilege. And now use it as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how does it sound for me to say, turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 6 with me, would you please? 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, if you know anything about landing an airplane, you come in downwind, then you go crosswind, or, or uh, upwind, crosswind, and, or, yeah, downwind, crosswind, and then landing into the wind to slow down. We're on our downwind leg, getting ready to go crosswind, getting ready to line up on the runway and bring in First Timothy for a landing. I hope you found it beneficial. I've enjoyed uh, preaching the Christmas messages this year and gathering throughout the Christmas season. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is going to give some very specific instruction. And actually this morning I want to read our text, but we're going to study this text next week because we're going to go to the Old Testament this morning and um, have a message that's going to remind us of how important next week's message is. As the Apostle Paul gives a very specific warning. Let's read our text and uh, enter into the scriptures here this morning with anticipation. At the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2, the last phrase the apostle uses is, Teach and urge these things. Remember that this is a Pauline epistle, that is, the apostle Paul, writing to young Timothy, who's a pastor in Ephesus, so we call it a pastoral epistle as well. So we're listening in on a letter from the great Apostle Paul to young Pastor Timothy and what he's supposed to teach in the church. We're the church cutting in on the letter. Timothy, teach and urge these things. Verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Let's just stop there and think a minute. These are strong words and... That's the first part of a two-part warning that we're going to look at in detail about the importance of keeping 
a pure doctrine in the church and how there are people who will use their teaching ministries to distort the truth that end up leading people astray. And the Apostle Paul uses strong words. They're depraved, they're deprived, they're wicked, and they're doing it for false gain, false motives. In our culture, the first person who comes to our mind is the televangelist with his diamond and gold rings and his jewelry, his $2,500 suits, his... um, mansions on on the ocean front his limousines his big fancy cars in multiple garages and big houses pleading through the preaching of the gospel for people to give more to the ministry so that they can indulge themselves they don't say that part but they distort the message of Christ for personal gain there are other issues that Paul is warning about and these controversies and and the divisiveness that comes over not sticking to the doctrines of our Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles and what they taught. And in that context of warning about these leaders who would use the gospel for personal gain, the Apostle Paul then gives another warning that I want us to focus upon today. And this is what I mean. I want us then to go to the Old Testament and I want us to have exhibit A on how serious this matter really is when it works its way out in a life. Notice what he says. He said, they imagine at the end of verse 5 that godliness is a means of gain, and he means financial gain. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That's a good verse for the new year. And you ask yourself a question right now. Say, am I a contented Christian? Am I content? Am I content with God's provision? Am I I content with what God is doing in my life? Sometimes we need a godly discontent, don't we? But when it comes to God's provision and, and God shepherding us, we need to become content and not be grumbling Christians, don't we? 4, verse 7, look what he says. We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. That's where the old adage comes that you never see, you know, a trailer hitch and a U-Haul on a hearse. But if we have food and clothing, Paul says, with these we will be content. Wow. If we have food and clothing, let's be content. But those who desire, here we go, watch the warning. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That word plunge in verse 9, in the Greek, it, it means what we understand it to mean. It means to sink, to submerge, and to go all the way to the bottom and stay there. That's what will happen. You... You don't control your passions and your priorities get out of whack, the Apostle Paul says. And you better watch it because it's not money that is evil. It's not wrong to be a rich person. Very concerned about the social shift in our country and the demonization of the wealthy, even calling them a class. We are Americans. We don't have upper class, middle class, lower class. We're all Americans. That's not what Paul's talking about. If you can make money, make money. He's saying, when you get to where you love money and you start having a drive that can get you in trouble, you better watch out. It can sink you and take you down to the bottom and keep you there longer than you ever planned to stay. And some of you know 
the financial ruin and bondage of the love of things and money, and it has sunk you. And you've tried to re-approach re the surface and get started again, only to begin to sink again. Apostle Paul's warning us about our tendency of the flesh to love the things that money can get for us. Look what he says. They plunge people into ruin and destruction. He calls them senseless and harmful ruin. Doesn't even make sense what you're doing. It's just crazy. He goes on to say, for the, there it is, for the love of money, make sure you get that, the love of money, an inordinate desire, having a misplaced priority, having the passion of your heart on the things and on the materialism and the wealth, removing your eyes off of Christ. Look what it can do. For the love of money, this is the root of all kinds of evil. And here's the warning. It is through this craving that some have even wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. <laughs> wow. You realize that in 2013, if you're not careful, we don't maintain proper priority and a proper perspective and walk in the will of God, surrendered to the word of God, that it is possible to let the love of money get a hold of you in such a way that you become misguided in your passions and you actually leave your love for Jesus for the things of the world and for money. It's a dangerous thing. And Paul warns us, he uses a vivid word picture. He said, they have been pierced through. The Greek word for pierced there means to be impaled, to be run through. I remember in college when I was taking my EMT classes, the section on sucking lung wounds and our instructor talking about arriving on accident scenes, paramedics and EMTs that were training us, arriving on an accident scene and having a guy with a fence post impaled all the way through him and still alive. What do you do? How do you transport? How do you take care of that? Guy's been run through. It's a very vivid picture physically. Bring it over to the spiritual end. And the point is you will die spiritually if you give in to the love of money. You better be awake. You better be alert. I want to back up for just a minute and I want to point out one other word in our text. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare. Now snares aren't very popular anymore. Jonathan and I have been trying to trap groundhogs a little bit last summer and fall. A snare, you know, is a piece of wire. Do you know that? A snare is a piece of wire that the old timers used to use to trap animals. You know, rabbits and, and even um, groundhogs will create a path. I don't know if you've ever seen a groundhog hole and you look and you'll see where his main run is. Almost all animals will follow a path. Our church woods has a little a deer path down through it that, that we call deer highway. You can go, you can almost run down through the middle of our church woods on deer highway. The deer come up and down from across Daniel Road through the woods on a path. So the old timers would take a piece of wire and they would carefully and they would try to do it without scent. And, and they were trying to trap for fur, maybe for beaver or, or for whatever, for fox. And they would find the path and they would put this wire 
that was arranged in such a way that it would cinch up and the animal coming down the path would be sniffing its way along and thinking about, hmm, go find me something to eat. And before you know it, it would run its head through the wire, but the wire loop was small enough that it couldn't get its shoulders through. But by the time it reacted to the feeling of the foreign object around it, it would jerk and it would suck the wire around it, often killing it by suffocation. And there it was. That's considered inhumane. And so we use box traps now an awful lot. And you know how this works, don't you? You get some, you get some carrots and some lettuce and some apple cores and peelings. And old groundhog, he comes out of his hole. And old groundhog, he comes along and all of a sudden, he's like, carrots, <laughs> apple, lettuce. And you know what he thinks? Because groundhogs can think. Groundhog thinks to himself, he thinks... He looks at, he says, today is my lucky day. Today is my lucky day. There's carrots and there's apples and there's lettuce. And then he does something. He comes around to the other end where it's open because all that's down on this end. He can't get to it. He, he bumps into it and he, man, this is good. Today's a great day. And, and he comes to this end that's all propped open, spring-loaded, and got the little le- lever down in there, and, and he does something. He violates his conscience. You don't think groundhogs have an inner voice, do you? They do. I've had them in my crosshairs across the field, and all of a sudden, they jump down, and in their hole, they go, they could feel it. They knew. The little voice said, you better get down. Pastor Van's out there. <laughs> and don't feel bad about killing groundhogs this morning, all right? Because that's pretty much why God put them on the earth. Don't get up and leave this service, all right? I really do love animals. I do. I hope I didn't... Well. So, Groundhog does something. He doesn't listen to his inner voice. He comes around to the back of the cage, and he's thinking, lettuce, carrot, apple salad. He's thinking, what a break. I don't have to work hard. I don't have to go clear over there, away from my hole, to the little clover patch I've been working. And then he, here's when his little voice speaks to him. You see, animals don't like to go into a space like that, with that ring around them. And they know he's... And the little voice says to him, don't go in there. You know you don't go into places like that. But then something in his nose and in his brain coordinates that goes to his gizzard and it says, oh, I love apple peels. I love carrots, man. And today really is my lucky day. Bam. And it's just like James chapter one, isn't it? Where the flesh coordinates with the lust and the lust leads to sin and sin after it does its work brings forth death. You know what we have to do, and it's why I like to challenge our congregation early in the year, annually. We need to be really careful not to think, that could never happen to me. I can't imagine somebody would leave Jesus to go chasing that dream. I can't imagine that I would get impaled through with the lust of my flesh and my love for money. It happens all the time, people. It happens all the time. 
And so exhibit A today, what I want to do is I want to show you what this looks like when it kicks in. I want to show you how ugly this is. And that way next week you'll really listen to the message when we get to 1 Timothy 6 and you'll believe Paul that this is what happens. It's 2 2 Kings and it's chapter 5 in your Old Testament. And it is just a most remarkable story. As you're finding 2 Kings, let me remind you of the key players in our story. Can I do that? The first player in our story, and he's At first, he's the most important guy. His name is Naaman. You ever heard of him? Naaman. If you've been around Sunday school, you'll hear about him eventually. Naaman. He's a general in the land of Syria. Pretty much the same place today Syria is. Damascus. He's been very successful. He's been well rewarded for his leadership. He's a very wealthy man. And he's right-hand man to the king of Syria. You have to know that at this time, the king of Israel is a wicked man. He's the son of Ahab, who was married to Jezebel, and he's not a godly king. He's also in trouble most of the time. In fact, the king of Syria, with generals like Naaman, pretty much have their way with the king in Israel. If if the king in Syria says through Naaman to the king of Israel, jump, he says how high on the way up. That's kind of how it is right now. Naaman, General Naaman. You need to know that the context historically of this story is the time of the great mighty prophets Elijah and Elisha. Remember those guys? You always get them mixed up with the Jah and the Shah. Elijah was the great man of God that called down fire from on the mountain. Remember fire on the mountain? And uh, Daniel and Carolee are here. Good morning. Great to have you here with your baby. And Elijah calls down the fire on the Mount Carmel, remember? And that's when Jezebel and all of her false, prof- of her false prophets were there. And it didn't rain for three years. That's Elijah, the mighty man of God. God did great, marvelous works through him. He had an understudy whose name was Elisha, remember? He put his mantle of servanthood on him. And, prof, the, and Elijah blessed Elisha, and Elisha became the next great prophet in Israel. These are the guys through whom God spoke to the people. God spoke to the Israelites and, and the residents of Judah there through these prophets. If only they would listen to them. They were men of God. There were some false prophets, but these were mighty men of God. Elisha is the main prophet here. All right, and you're going to hear his name right away. Later on in the last half of the story, and we need to kind of speed to get to it because that's the point of our message. He's our exhibit A guy. Is a servant to Elisha whose name is Gehazi. Gehazi. Don't you like that name? Gehazi. Make a good name for your dog or your horse or something. Gehazi. Name a hog Gehazi. That'd be good. All right. Gehazi is a prophet to the man of God, Elisha. I take it that he's a good man. I take it that he's a lot like us, that he loved Elisha, that he loved God. He had seen mighty works go on through Elisha. Remember the, uh, the oil and the flour that never ran out, the raising of the dead. It's amazing. I take it that Gehazi was right there through all of that stuff, that he believed everything Elisha said. But Gehazi, Gehazi is going to have a day that he's going to think to himself on the inside, Today is my lucky day. Today's my day. I got it. You watch. Let's, let's run through the first half of the story so that you know what's happening and how the whole thing sets itself up. 
It's all of chapter 5. I'm going to read kind of quickly now. You know the key characters. General Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, verse 1, chapter 5, 2 Kings. King of Syria was a great man with his master and in high favor. The king of Syria loved Naaman because by him, through Naaman, the Lord, and in the Israelite of old, even though they were the negative recipients of the conquering Syrians, they recognized that the God of Israel had given him the victory. The writer of the historian here recognizes that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had blessed him and given him the victory to Syria. God was using them as his tools, his instrument. He was a mighty man of valor. Oh, I didn't tell you, did I? Look at the last part of that verse. But he was a leper. He was wealthy. He was successful. It was all huge. I take it, based upon his behavior in the story, that it was probably early on in the disease, that uh, this leprosy, a, a debilitating skin disease that took over the body and ultimately was fatal, was probably in its earlier stages because he was still quite functional. He could still be around people, but he had leprosy and you need to know there was no cure. There was no cure. Let's read on. But Naaman was a leper. Now the Syrians, verse 2, on one of their raids had carried off a little girl. Here's another player you need to know about. Look at this girl. Don't know her name, but she's precious. From the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. One of his exploits, soldiering. He had gone down into Israel. They had pillaged and conquered and he had brought back some people and this little girl must have caught Naaman's eye because he brought her home to his wife to be the house girl, to be the helper to his wife, Naaman did. And this little girl evidently respected Naaman enough that she cared about him and she knew all about the leprosy. She knew that that was the talk of the household. She had maybe even seen her mistress, the wife of Naaman, weeping in the mornings or in the evenings when she thought and sat down for a minute and recognized that things were going to change in their house, that Naaman had leprosy. He was not going to be a strong man much longer and he was going to die. In fact, he might even have to leave home and separate himself from his family she goes, look at verse 3. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. She knows about Elisha. She knows about God and his power to use his people. So Naaman went in and he told his Lord, the king of, of uh, Syria... He said, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents, that's 750 pounds of silver, which do the math, what is it, 30 something ounce? Now, 6,000 shekels of gold, that's about 150 pounds of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, quote, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now this is kind of funny, verse 7. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes, the international sign of distress back then, and he said, I am... Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. 
(laughs) You got the picture? Naaman, through his wife, through the servant girl, hears about Elisha back in Israel. He goes to his boss and says, look, man, I hear there's a guy that can cure leprosy. I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm definitely going to go find out. Would you write me a letter so they know I'm not coming down there to do warfare and that I can get through some checkpoints and I can go see who I'm supposed to see? I'll go right to the king and get permission. So the king writes a letter, only he doesn't word it very carefully. The king of Syria to the king of Israel, he doesn't word it very carefully. And he says, I'm sending my dear servant Naaman to you to cure of leprosy. He opens and reads the letter and he, what do you mean? He set me up. He knows I can't cure leprosy. Who am I? Can I raise the dead? And he tears his clothes because he thinks, here we go again. And they're going to suffer for it. And they're going to start launching scuds down on him. And now look what happens. Verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, I like that. Would you underline that in your Bible? The man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. He sent to the king saying... Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. You know, every king, whether he's pagan or not, needs a man of God nearby, don't you think? We need to pray for our king that he would have a man of God nearby. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha, this is kind of funny too, verse 10. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, that's the river there, and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. (laughs) The leprosy. Naaman had his mind all made up exactly how this was going to work. Lots of times God doesn't do things the way you think he's going to do it, right? So he comes walking up to the house and, oh, Elisha's pretty cool. He sits back in his living room. He just sends his servant out, maybe Gehazi himself. And he sends his servant out and he says, hey, uh, my master says that you are supposed to run on down to the Jordan and uh, dunk in the river seven times, 25 miles away. Muddy River. He goes on to say, Naaman gets angry. He doesn't even come out. I thought he would come out and go, abracadabra, wave his hand over the leprosy, and then it would be away. He could picture exactly how this magic man was going to do it. Didn't do it that way. He's angry. He's a proud man. He's a leader. And he says, he points out that there's a couple of rivers back home that are even cleaner and nicer, are not Abana and Far par, the rivers of Damascus, better, verse 12, than all the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. He kicks his donkey. He kicks a bucket off the back of the chariot. Slams his chair and tells his chariot guy to go. Everybody's tense and tight. Yikes. But he has some good servants near him as well. Verse 13, but his servants came near and he said to him, my father is showing respect, trying to calm him down, trying not to get the wrath of him on him. My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? 
So Naaman changes his mind, verse 14, and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Wouldn't you love to see old Naaman come out, grouchy, mean? One! No, no, finish! Seven, up he comes. What a moment. He gets back in his chariot as fast as he can to head back to Elisha. Look what happens. And then he returned, verse 15, to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and he stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, you got to watch the pronouns here, that's Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. I will not take any of your stuff for your healing. And he, Naaman again, urged him to take it. But he... Elisha again refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. This is kind of a funny parenthesis. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Elisha says, go in peace, relax. Here's what the deal is. He wants to give Elisha some silver, some gold, some clothes, and, and honor him for this great gift. All right? Elisha says, no. I'm not in this for false gain. I'm not in this. I want it to be a testimony back in Syria and in all of Israel of the power of God and the purity of our motives and that we're not corrupt prophets. All right? So go. And then he says, well, I'm going to dig up some dirt. He puts it in bushel baskets and throws it on the back of the donkey because he believed falsely, but it was the mindset of the day that the pagan gods were special to a certain land. So if he took some of the land or the dirt from Israel over to his house and made him a little worship pad that Yahweh would hear him over there when he was on his dirt. But then he remembers that part of his job as being a servant to the king is to let the king be on his arm when he goes to worship his pagan gods at, at Rimmon and that he has to bow. Protocol in the temple of these false gods would be to bow. And he says to Elisha, I really believe in your God, but when I go back home, I'm going to have to bow because of my job. When my Elisha said, don't worry about it. God sees the heart. Go home, take your dirt, worship the Lord. Don't stress out. He says to him, go in peace. Shalom. Now we go. Listen closely, will you? The heart of the matter. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, here he is. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand What he brought, as the Lord lives, I will run after him and I will get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and he said, is all well. Here's where we are. Elisha looks at Naaman and says, go home. Gehazi stands there and he thinks, today's my lucky day. Today's my day. 
You see, point number one in getting into a trap is this. You will find yourself in disagreement internally with the trusted spiritual leaders in your life. You will find yourself in disagreement with the trusted spiritual leaders of your life. Elisha is a great man of God. Gehazi has the great privilege of being his servant. Why wouldn't he just be content? Godliness with contentment is great gain, Gehazi. He's thinking on the inside, what is wrong with you? This guy has all this wealth. He wants to leave it on your porch and you're telling him to pack it all the way back to Syria? I don't agree with that. The most trusted leader in his life, the most godly man in the nation, and on the inside, Gehazi's saying, I don't agree with this at all. Man, the bells better go off. I'm not saying that spiritual leaders are perfect, but I'm telling you, when you have spiritual, trusted spiritual leadership in your life and your gut tightens up at their counsel, you better examine your heart closely. It's because when you start disagreeing internally, even before the behavior is altered, with the trusted spiritual leaders of your life, you are ready to go in the back of the box. So the second thing he does is he hurries off. Look what the language says here in the story. He says in verse 20, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, he says, I will run after him. And then it says, verse 21, so Gehazi followed Naaman. The ESV translates it, followed after him. In the New American Standard, it uses the word pursued him. In the NIV, it uses the word hurried after him. He makes, listen to me, point number two, when you're getting in trouble and your perspective is becoming skewed and your priorities are getting off base, not only do you begin on the internal side to disagree with trusted spiritual leaders, but number two, you will find yourself very impatient and unwilling to wait for God's plan of blessing to unfold in your life. You will find yourself very impatient and unwilling to wait for God's plan of blessing to unfold in your life. Who was in a spot more promising than Gehazi to be blessed of the Lord? He's a servant of Elisha, the man of God, the shelter and the umbrella of protection that comes from that kind of spiritual leadership. And he says, wait upon the Lord, Gehazi. Today's not our day to take in loot. Today is our day to just serve the Lord for free. We've got to make a statement. And Gehazi says, I don't agree with that. And furthermore, I'm going to go run after it. Gehazi's thinking, today's my day. Today's my day. Today's my day. I got a plan. Look what else happens. Verse 22 and 23. And he said, well, Naaman gets down out of the chariot at the end of verse 21. Is all well? He sees him running. He stops his entourage. And he said, all is well. My master, my master sent me to say... There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. The third thing that might go on in your life is that you will find yourself rationalizing, scheming, and lying. Gehazi is now 
rationalizing, scheming, and lying. Uh, how many of you think that it's highly possible that two young men from Ephraim came to the prophet school? Could have totally happened. How many of you think that's probably happened a hundred times? How many times do you think Elisha may be told Gehazi, go downtown and go down on the corner where, where Joe is and tell Joe we got some students and he's a supporter of the school and ask him if he can give us a couple outfits of clothes for these poor country boys who came to the prophet school and see if he has some money that he will support them while they study here. Maybe this is exactly the kind of thing that Gehazi had done many different times. But he's manipulating now. Elisha never told him that. He's making up the story. He's taking circumstances and twisting them. And he's bold-faced lying to Naaman. And he's thinking, today's my lucky day. Today, apples and carrots and lettuce. I'm telling you. And he's walking. Can't you see Gehazi coming to the back? And he's getting in line and he's ready to go. He's getting ready to jump and he's scheming and he's lying to the degree that he takes the stuff. Notice what happens. Verse 24, back in verse 23, and Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. All Gehazi asked for was one talent and two sets of clothes. He didn't even make a dent in the loot. And Naaman, of course, said, no, don't take one talent, take two talents. I figured Gehazi might have even known how to do that. Set him up for that, and he urged him, and he tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing, and he laid them on two of his servants, and they carried them before God. He sent his servants to carry the stuff, and, and when he came to the hill, he, he came to the hill right below Gehazi's house. Nobody could see him yet. He took them from their hand and he put them in the house and he sent the men away and they departed. We used to have a little grocery store up the street, up 147th Street from our house in South Chicago. And my mom would send me down there with like 37 cents to go get milk and a loaf of bread on my bike. And I'd go racing down there and I would run up in my room before I went and try to find some dimes and, and nickels and a couple pennies and see if I could find like 17 cents to buy me a little drumstick. Ice cream cone. And I'd run down to S&S grocery store, get the milk, get the bread, come home. And then right across Mozart Street from where we lived in the South Chicago was Bob's Barbershop. And behind Bob's Barbershop was a bunch of trees. Right behind those trees was Mozart and then my house. I'd pull my bike in behind those trees because I wasn't done with my ice cream cone yet. Because <laughs> my mom didn't like me to spend my money on ice cream. Why did you? I would get a lecture about how the evils of ice cream and spending my money. <laughs> And so I had finished my ice cream cone before I went home. Gehazi's behind the hill. Gets his stuff, runs up there, and he's behind the hill, and he takes care of all his loot. But there's an interesting lesson, and if you're a young person here today, you need to listen especially closely to this point. This is a good message for young people. Now listen to me. This is a good message for old people too, though. Some young person should have said, that's right. It's good. So listen, number four, when I'm getting ready to get into a trap, I will often find in my life that I have hidden stash and personal secrets. I have hidden stash and personal secrets. That's Gehazi. He reminds me of Achan back in Joshua chapter seven and eight. 
He took the Babylonian garment, the wedge of gold and silver. Remember when they took, when they destroyed Jericho and it was God's will for that to be annihilated. And he takes all the stuff. He runs home. And what does he do? He digs a hole in the bottom of his tent and buries it. Cool, man. I got this stuff. Now what? That's Gehazi a little bit right now. He's got his new, you don't think Elisha knows what Gehazi dresses like every day of every year, of every month, every month of every year. Gehazi, the new threads. Nice. You know, they're taking all the guys out to, to McDonald's and Elisha says, dollar menu, one selection in water. That's it. <laughs> all these prophet guys, we don't have money at the prophet school. And Gehazi says, what's he going to do? Whip out his wallet and say, no, let's do Applebee's, boss. It's not going to happen. He's got it stashed away in his house. He's got secrets now. He's got secrets nobody knows about, at least in Israel. So let's see what happens and what a moment this is. Verse 24, when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand. He sent them away. They depart. Verse 25, he went in and he stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? I haven't been anywhere. Me? Yeah, Gehazi, you. Your servant went nowhere. What, what, why, why, why do you think I went somewhere? And you're messing with the wrong guy, man. Look what it says. But he said to him, Did not my heart go, go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Gehazi, was it a time to accept money and garments? Olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female. He's exaggerating. Gehazi, I don't care what the man said he would give you. I don't care if he's going to give you his olive orchard. I don't care if he's going to give you all his servants. Was today the day we're taking gifts? The answer is no. But Gehazi says, but I didn't agree with that. And I didn't want to wait for the day when we could get some gifts and I came up with a scheme, and I have a plan, and now down under my bed in the closet, I have a stash. And now Elijah, Gehazi is way in here. Bam! Look what happens. Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. Forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. I want to point out that when Elisha looks at Gehazi and he says, where have you been? And Gehazi says, I haven't been anywhere. That the fifth point is, you know, you're way in the trap. You know, the trap's ready to close. You cannot turn around in these things. When you are willing and find yourself lying to those you love the most. Those closest to you and you're lying in their face? What is wrong with you? It's my lucky day. It's my lucky day, man. It's too good to pass up. You can't pass this stuff up. Bam. And that day, how old's Gehazi? 26, 27, 28, 31? I don't know. Let's go visit Gehazi two decades later when he's 52 years old and old. He's got grandkids. And you look at his hands and you look at his ears and his nose is gone. 
and his breath rattles because the leprosy's eaten him up. And he looks at his son, and he's got leprosy, and his little grandson's starting to break out on the tips of his fingers. And you ask Gehazi, wasn't that a good day? Wasn't that your lucky day when apples and carrots and lettuce were right there? But Gehazi was what? Psalm 37 says, wait on the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 84 10, 11, 12. The Lord God is a sun and a shield and the Lord will give grace and glory and no good thing will he withhold from him whose walk is upright. Do you trust your heavenly father? You have a good shepherd you shall not want. He'll make you lie down in green pastures. He'll restore your soul. What's the inner voice telling you right now? Gehazi says, today's my lucky day, man. And it was the worst day of his life. You cannot overstate how bad this day was for Gehazi. What is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? Listen, it is what we have in common. It is the battle of the flesh. It is the lure of the world. And all of the riches in Christ are ours. And we're panting after things that are outside of the will of God at a time when God doesn't want us to have them. And we will scheme and lie and claw our way into the cage. I think that this is a great Sunday, the first Sunday of the new year, to have brokenness before God, don't you? I think this is a great day for God's people to just remind themselves. And we remind ourselves we are so vulnerable to become pierced through, to get in the snare. That we would just be content Christians, content and satisfied in our Lord Jesus, content and satisfied to be his church, to learn the joy of obedience, to believe our spiritual leaders, and we have many trusted spiritual leaders, including Elisha. And when we say, I don't agree with them, let that be a red flag and say, it doesn't matter what you feel right now. You just watch him and listen to the pilot. That God would keep us from falling, Jude's words, in 2013. Amen? That God would show us how to love him and walk in obedience. That God would show us to just be lovers of Christ in such a way that his blessings are able to come in his time, at his place, in his way. Let's bow our heads. It occurs to me that this might be a good day for some people to kneel at these steps. I don't think you need to be embarrassed of that one bit. Our heads are bowed. If you need to get up front and come and kneel at these steps, because sometimes getting out of your chair and and doing something like that, it helps you tell the Lord how serious you really are. Because good intentions, they're not worth very much. But intention is where behavior begins. 
Maybe you don't know Christ as your Savior. Today might be your day to be saved and to enter into a new life in Christ. But particularly, I'm talking to the church today to get rid of sin, to stop fooling yourself, to make sure we don't get caught in the snare, that we don't, we don't end up plunging in and sinking to the bottom this year. That our priorities are straight, our passions are genuine, our integrity is in order, our character house is sound, we're growing in godliness. Will you tell the Lord right now what you need to tell Him? Maybe you've got a secret stash, some other secrets that have got to go. Make up your mind right now, don't fool around. So, Father, you know our hearts and everything is wide open and laid bare before you. And so accomplish your purposes in our hearts, Lord. Humble us. Help us to be the men and the women and the boys and girls you want us to be. And may Jesus be our all in all. May we be all about him. May we learn to be satisfied with him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.